Sometimes, in education, we need to step back to see the forest for the trees. Other times, however, it's the variation between the trees that makes the forest itself most beautiful. Kelly Tillman is an art educator at Wald Lake Consolidated Schools. There, she teaches in a choice-based art classroom, where students are empowered to make creative decisions as though they were professional artists. What does a choice-based art curriculum look like? During our conversation, Kelly offered an example of an assignment that really helped me understand. Let's say she wanted to offer her students the opportunity to create a project that centered thematically on a tree. Rather than having every student draw a specific birch tree in the same exact style, a choice-based approach instead invites students into the creative process to create a tree in a style or medium that captivates them. This approach is particularly effective at Wald Lake, where the student body itself is very diverse. In her art classroom, Kelly works with students from many different backgrounds. She has students who are Chaldean, Japanese, British, Russian, Armenian, and more. At one point, she says, there were speakers of 50 to 60 different languages represented in her district. As a result of her choice-based model for learning, Kelly's art classroom is a place where art of all styles and cultures can thrive. Throughout our conversation, she shared her journey to choice-based learning, offered insight into the challenges that she faced along the way, including assessing student art in a way that allows for both choice and failure, and gave advice for fellow teachers looking to incorporate art into their curriculum as an option for differentiation. Since switching over to a choice-based classroom, Kelly's found both improved student engagement and a reduction in behavioral issues. After hearing her talk about her innovative approach to learning, and the tree assignment in particular, I was left inspired by the image of an art classroom decorated with trees of every shape, size, color, and medium. I couldn't help but think of this variegated forest itself as a beautiful metaphor for personalized learning, both inside and outside the art classroom. Every student is different, Kelly reminds us. And when we create space in our curriculum to honor these differences and allow students to be the co-creators of their own learning, the wide array of work that results can be absolutely breathtaking. In choice-based learning for art, we're making the student the artist. Um, so when I teach a lesson, um, the old way of teaching, the way I was trained was I create the lesson, you know, we learn how to draw birch trees and we paint birch trees and then we all turn in the same birch tree project, right? In choice base, I say, we're going to draw trees. What kind of tree do you want to draw? Let's practice drawing trees. And then let's, let's discuss what do artists do to create landscapes or let's t discuss what do artists do to do this. And then the students make the choice if they want to do the birch tree lesson that I may have taught or if they want to learn how to draw something else or if they want to do it cartoon style or they want to make it 3D. Um, you know, and so they become the artists and they have to make those decisions on their own instead of me having to make all those decisions for them. And I think you can push that into like science, like how can we have the students be the scientists, like instead of the, you know, science teacher figuring out the lab, what is the student doing to figure out the, you know, the, pro the process that's happening? How are they going about making that um, instead of just following the steps by steps? I'm Nikki Herda, and this is Bright. Stories of Hope and Innovation in Michigan Classrooms, a podcast where we celebrate our state's educators and explore the future of learning. 
let's dive in. What have you found that that having that choice really does for students? Like what's the effect that you see on students and on their learning? So when I first started teaching, I was very much like providing students with exactly the prescribed project, right? And they would all turn in the same thing. Um, and it was like behavior issues just were nonstop. Like some kids were like, well, I don't like to draw trees. I don't want to draw trees or, you know, whatever it was, they were just kind of like, I don't like that material. That's gross. And so you had all these like behavior issues that would occur. When I do choice base, I can have kids who are like, but I want to go build with cardboard and I love cardboard or I really love clay. And so they can kind of go off and experiment with the theme in their own medium and really kind of build their own kind of um, artistic, you know, I don't know what you would call that, but like their own little portfolio, I guess, basically. Um, and they're studying and thinking and, and doing everything that is of interest to them. So the major class disruptions change, you know. Um, I had an incredibly difficult class last year where I had students who were doing high school level artwork. I mean, amazing artwork. And then I had students who hadn't taken an art class ever. And because we were working in this choice level, I could sit with the students who had never taken art and be like, okay, let's talk about what, what do lines look like? How do we draw, you know, how would we draw a tree? How would we draw a mountain? What kind of things are you interested in? And they can kind of go and experiment on their own at their level. So we're not all stuck, you know, in this one size fits all kind of art room. And it's nice because you can, you can move around and you can give independence to who needs independence. And then you can have like structured assignments as needed. I imagine the, the works that result from this are like more like fun to look at too, right? Like rather than having a bunch of trees that look the same, you have trees that look, you know, like the forest itself is, you know, very uh, diverse. So. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And you get, um, you get interesting answers to problems. You know, when I structure a lesson, I'm choosing what I like and I don't recognize that, you know, I mean, I do recognize that students might have different ideas, but even if you say like, if you want to like push this beyond, they usually won't because they feel so confined to it. So when you say, no, you have to make the decision, then they, you know, they start thinking differently and, and their process of going about something is so totally different in ways that I would have never even like thought my own way, you know. You said you've seen like reduced behavior issues? Yeah, a lot of reduced behavior issues. Kids seem to want to participate and, you know, want to do the work because it's their work. Um, it's their ideas. It's their, you know, they're invested in that and they want to come and they want to do the work. I'm wondering if you could talk about a time that you saw your innovation efforts in your classroom, um, perhaps your choice-based learning, have like a really significant impact on a student. I've had some students who, because of choice-based, have started doing some things. Last year, um, a student, Abby, she really wanted to learn how to draw dogs and so she practice and practice. And she came back to me. She actually couldn't take art in eighth grade because of how band and orchestra and, and I don't even know what her classes were, but she had like a language and a music course. 
And so she couldn't take art. She brought me this amazing dog drawing that she had done. I mean, realistic. And I said, we got to, we got to put this in a competition. And I have never like signed her up or any kid up for this particular scholastic competition. I said, we got to put this in there. Like, this is just amazing. And so she went, we took it and it went for the gold key, which is basically like the best level that you can get in scholastic. Um, and then it went to nationals. It didn't make it at nationals, but I mean, it was for a kid who just went off on her own. Like, I want to learn how to do this. It was amazing that she could have that opportunity to do that. Whereas, you know, in my old style, when I was teaching, when I first started, I, we would have never found that, that that was of an interest to her. So. And I imagine with something like art, um, that having that choice probably does produce better work, you know, because I don't know, I guess I'm not an art teacher. (laughs) It's so driven by passion and emotion, like great work, you know? So if, you know, the student didn't have that passion for, you know, dogs in this case, it might not have gotten that far probably, you know? Right. I could see like, if you had a passion and understanding something, like, and you had that opportunity in your science class to investigate and to start searching, that might open the door as well, where, you know, you're going off at home and, and investigating even more, or, you know, I don't, I don't know how that would work in math or history, but I'm sure there would be ways for the same thing. Like if you have been sparked on an interest in like civil war or something like that, like, why wouldn't you stop? Like, you know, why, why would we end when the chapter ends? Like, let's keep that passion going and encourage the kids to keep moving forward. One of the challenges that often arises with choice-based learning is assessment. For teachers, the prospect of grading a wide variety of student assignments can seem overwhelming. Throughout our conversation, Kelly shared what she's learned along the way in the three years since she began her choice-based curriculum. It can be difficult, she acknowledges, to grade in a way that allows for failure, which in itself is a critical part of art, of innovation, and of learning in general. We also discussed what tends to hold educators back from embracing choice-based learning, Kelly's journey in overcoming some of these challenges, and her advice for teachers looking to embark on this journey themselves. One thing that this all makes me wonder, right, is so I think teachers have always known that individualization is important, right, and always wanted to meet students where they were and always wanted to unlock their unique passions. but what I've heard from teachers, you know, is that that's, that can be overwhelming when you have 150 students. And I'm wondering if you could speak to what has held us back, you know, from being able to do this in the past um, and maybe why it seems more possible now or why it's this now is becoming like a new paradigm. I think now we're recognizing that it's definitely needed. Um, You know, as we went online, we found students who really, like, that's their thing. Like, they can do this online, individualized learning way better than they were doing sitting in a classroom. Like, they're pushing themselves because they're expanding the curriculum to what they like. Um, So I think we're seeing that. But I think the thing that holds us back is fear. I think, um, 
at the administrative level. And I, I mean, I'm not an administrator, I'm a teacher, but talking to administrators and hearing what, you know, things they say, it strikes me as fear. Like if we open this up to project-based learning or we open this up to choice-based learning, how do we assess that a student is at the grade level they're at? You know, how do we prove that the student is learning and and meeting all the needs that they need to if we're not, you know, giving them tests like the MEEP or the, or whatever, MSTEP, I guess is what it's called now, I'm aging myself, ACT or SAT, you know, if we're not giving like benchmarks exams, like all this kind of stuff, like how are we, how do we know that this kid is meeting those levels? And how can we hold kids who maybe would very easily want to just like kind of sit back and say, I'm going to let the curriculum kind of pass me by. Like, how do we get those kids to demonstrate their learning? Like, and I don't, I mean, I don't know, like, there's no good way to say, like, you you just have to dive in, right? Like, we're always going to be afraid of it. Like, it's always, there's always going to be questions. But like with me, when I went to Choice Base, it was like the first time I just tried like one project and then I tried a couple more projects and then I went too far and did too much. And so I had to reel it back in and say, well, wait a second, my kids aren't ready for this. Um, You know, there's always that push and pull. And I think, you know, if we're having teachers be, you know, master level teachers or doctorate level teachers, we have to, as you know, administrators have to trust that we're going to know that push and pull to know where to pull our kids. It's hard with 150 kids. Like, how do you not miss Johnny, who's just not done anything all semester? You know, it it would be great if there was better funding and smaller class sizes. But, you know, right now, maybe that's something that we learn how to do the push and pull, you know, in its own way. Yeah, that brings up uh, another question for me, which is, so what, I guess what would be like your response to that, right? Like, you know, somebody's, you know, comes up and says, well, if everybody's doing something different, how do you, how do teachers assess that? And how do we make it, you know, like quote unquote fair? And what would you like, what would be your response to that? Like, how have you treated that in your classroom? Well, I think there's like basic levels of skills that you have to master, right? And and I can't speak to elementary, like because I don't teach elementary kids. And I look at my my own personal kids, and I'm like, okay, you have to learn how to read. Like, there's you know, there's certain skills that probably have to be taught, like with basic assessments. Like we can't, you can't get around that. Like you still have to have spelling tests, and you still have to have reading tests. But at some point, when you hit middle and high school, like there's basic skills that you can meet and you can show that through either project-based learning or you can show it through, um, you know, essay writing or, you know, all that stuff. And if you can demonstrate and start using that, the moment you start applying it and using it regularly, that we know that that skill has been met. Like, you know, that's like Ken O'Connor and um, I can't think of some of the other name, big names, but, you know, those are, we know that those skills, once you're starting to use that and able to teach that to the next person, then you surpass that. So taking a multiple choice M-step test isn't going to, you know, do anything to kind of push that. We just have to decide what are those skills, you know, and, and how do we want to meet those? And I think science standards are there. I think, you know, you have English standards 
those are easy to blend into that. What challenges have you faced in, you spoke to it a little bit, in implementing this choice-based model? And how did you overcome them? Do you have any advice for you know, new teachers or teachers who are new to the choice-based model? You know, any, any new model, it's best to go slow. Um, you know, when I, when I decided to jump in, I thought, oh, I'll try all three classes. Let's do the, you know, like, and I went all three grade levels. That was the worst plan <laughs> in the world because A, you, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea if it was going to work. And B, I just dove right in and thought, you know, whatever. Um, it, it, it wasn't, I don't know if the kids who had me would say that it was a fail. I think they thought it was just a lot of fun. But, you know, when you circle back and you're like, you know, reflecting on what happened, you kind of know. Um, I think taking little bits that you can and just changing maybe one lesson at a time and then eventually you get to five lessons. So my whole methodology in my classroom is going to change. And, you know, that's where you get over time. They always say three years. Um, it takes three years to get there. Don't start with your oldest students because they know the old way and they don't want to go to the new way, right? So for me, sixth grade, having them come in from elementary, it's like, hey, you're learning a new way. We're all learning a new way. It was a great place to start. And then you can kind of build from there on how you go about. But yeah, there was there's a lot of fails. And I think that's the cool thing is when kids see you fail, like, they're like, oh, Miss Tillman, that did not go well. And you're like, okay, so what do we learn from this? And then, you know, and then they know, like, it's okay if the adult is failing. Like, they feel more comfortable failing themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've heard a lot more increased discussion around that, uh, particularly, you know, for teachers. Like, if you innovate, you're you're probably going to fail. And we need to create cultures, school cultures that embrace that and, mo and and model that. And it sounds like you're doing that for your students, which is really cool. As best as I can, there's a struggle with the grading system. So like, how do you encourage a kid to experiment and explore? And then their experiment turns out to be a hot mess and it didn't work and they don't have a product at the end. And you're like, but I'm supposed to grade this on this, this and that. And it's not there because it failed. Like, how do you balance that? How do we work that piece out? And that's kind of where I'm at now. It's like, how do I encourage the failure and fit it with my current model for grading? Uh, and Or how do I change my model for grading? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, is, is the question, you know, how do we restructure our grading practices and our grading values to accept and embrace and encourage failure? It's fascinating. It is fascinating. I don't know what the answer is. I know there's a lot of teachers who are, you know, or a group of teachers who are pushing for gradeless. And then they can say, like, and it's pretty much like the elementary, you know, um, report card where, you know, they just say has met, has not met, or, you know, is secure. And, you know, you're not really grading. You're just saying this is the skill where you've met that skill or you have not met that skill. What do you think about that? It would be really hard in art. Um, there's so many skills and skills are changing all the time. Um, I mean, I guess they're not in a way, but 
you know, if you're into realistic drawing, like you may be able to draw a realistic item, but you might have to go to the next one and then you have to start with that skill again. So maybe you can draw a realistic dog, but you move into people and that's a new skill. Like how do you, you know, you're starting a little bit further ahead, but now you've got to start over. Can you say that you're secure in drawing or can you say that you're, you know, like it's always a question of that kind of thing. So but I could see it working in, um, you know, like, um, you know, like fractions or something like that in math, like is secure in adding fractions, is secure in multiplying fractions. Like that's an easy skill to say. Did having to grade and assess all those different types of trees and all those different types of styles, was that hard, hard for you at first? Yeah, so my old method was the rubric where you have like, you did this, you did that, you did this, you did that, right? Like, and you just kind of checked it off. And so my first time through, I was like, wait, this isn't going to work because they're all doing totally different things. And so now I've kind of moved to how are you putting your objects together? Are you thinking about how the picture comes together as a final piece? what is your quality of like, you know, what is your quality of turning it in? Like, does this look like you did it in 20 seconds or does it look like, you know, you've spent some time thinking about it or do you have a purpose as to why you wanted it to look like you did it in 20 seconds? Like all that kind of stylistic kind of things. And so it's more of a conversation as to where are you, how are you turning in a finalized looking project And then are you, did you meet the theme? Did you, you know, does it include a tree or does it not? Like that kind of thing. Many leaders in education are advocating for more student choice and agency in our schools. Throughout our conversation, Kelly shared her hopes that more non-art teachers will begin offering art as an option for differentiation or project-based learning in their classrooms. It can be uncomfortable at first, she says, for non-art teachers to know how to grade an art project rather than something like a multiple-choice test. But for some students, being able to express their learning through art can be much more effective and memorable than taking a test. I'd love to see, you know, the arts included in all subject areas, but I know that that's like really pushing the limits there. So, (laughs) but I think that's a way for students to push that idea of choice, you know, instead of maybe taking a test to assess it, like how can you demonstrate that through one of the arts mediums? The school I told you about in DC, they had, um, their science test was to perform a musical on their, basically their science unit. And so they created a Hamilton based science, like musical, the whole class did, and they wrote all the music and everything. And he said the kids could tell you everything from that unit because they had memorized all the songs. So, like, it was pretty cool. I've heard a lot about that with, like, differentiation, you know, in learning. And so I wonder if that's almost what you're speaking about, like offering more artistic-based projects in other classes, you know, as as a way for students to express their learning. Yeah, absolutely. So, but any of the, you know, if you're more of an athletic kid, then... Maybe there's a way to do, you know, I I don't know anything about that, but, um, you know, maybe there's a way to incorporate that into how you express what you've learned and and what you've understood. Do you think um, 
that has to do maybe other teachers that would be afraid to do that a little bit since they don't have like a like a classical art training like you do? I think that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you allow a kid to do like a three dimensional sculpture if you aren't comfortable in that like realm or, you know, like I had a student who was doing um, hand stitching, like she was cross stitching for a project. And I was like, I don't know anything about that. Like, you know, but you just have to trust that the kid is going to research it and figure it out in their way to express what they know. What advice would you give to a teacher, like a non-art teacher who is trying to incorporate more art in this way, like to try to offer it as a choice for students to express their learning? Yeah, I mean, I would start small and, you know, with basic materials. I mean, I think every kid has, I shouldn't say that, many students have, you know, Crayola colored pencils or markers or those kind of things. And, you know, just opening it up to become, you know, if you want to do a drawing or you want to do um a song or you know that kind of thing and just again with that like just a little toe dip into it and try something and then the next time maybe you say okay so I brought in some of these old Amazon boxes I had if you want to build something out of it for this thing like hey go at it the kids will they know what they're doing they know where they're going with it um and that kind of you know opens up that idea of like maker space and you know you just kind of let them have that moment to build what they need. Um, and then I think, and then it just has to, you know, if it becomes a school-wide thing, then you start talking about like, how do we make this look good? How do we, you know, all that. And that can kind of be what the art teacher teaches. Like, how do we make these things look good? Right. And that I suppose would be the difference, right? Because in the art classroom, that is the subject matter versus with a Hamilton example, it wasn't theater class. It was, I think you said history um, or science. It's science. Right? The reflection I had when you were speaking about, you know, assessing students and how that looked different when it was all the different types of trees versus, you know, the one type of tree. Um, it sounded like you were, you know, it's more about the process than the product. Would that be accurate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, taking the students through that design process by, you know, what is what is it you want to create and research and then create and then think and reflect and then create and think and reflect and just kind of keep going through the whole design process. Um, and hopefully that translates, you know, beyond my doors so that they can use that in other rooms as well. And so it seems more like metacognitive almost like they're thinking about their learning process while they're making art which is pretty neat yeah yeah my sixth graders right now are making posters and so we're talking about like what do designers do and I said well you're hired to design this poster so you have to think like a designer what would I want you know the person who's hired you what do they want in the poster and then you know you're your first plan is to come back to me and say, this is what I'm thinking. And I'm going to say, oh, yeah, no, that that is not what I was thinking. And I said, that's how it works for real designers in the real world. Like, you know, and so they have to keep going through that that loop of, you know, how do we get this to be good for the, the person who's hired us? I also asked Kelly about the role technology plays in her choice-based art classroom. There are many uses, she explained, but a critical one is preparing students for their future careers, where technology is a ubiquitous part of professional life, especially, she says, for artists. 
why and when do you choose to use technology in your in your classroom? What does it do for you and for the students? What I like about it, um, some of the things like Artsonia and maybe even Google Classroom, is that there's a lot less, I set that on your desk and you lost it kind of situation. So that's one nice way. Like if they're forced to take a picture of it, it's there. I can see what they've done. Um, and it it can't get lost, you know, it can't get lost, especially in like Google Classroom. It's like, we can find that. Like it's been there. Um, and then um, I like that there's a record. Like we can look at it in time as it grows. So you have this like continual portfolio. Um, that was why I started with Artsonia because the elementary teachers were using Artsonia. So these kids can go back to their kindergarten art and they can look at their portfolio over time and say, oh my gosh, look at how much I've grown since this point in time. And, you know, so some of my eighth graders are looking at kindergarten artwork and are like, oh my God, Mrs. Tillman, this is so embarrassing. And it's like, no, you were a kindergartner. Come on. Right. But they can see that and they can see their growth. And I think that's huge for them to say like, oh my gosh, at one point I was drawing this way and now I'm here. Like whether they're good or not as an artist, um, you can still see the change in how they're doing. Um, the other thing is, is technology is huge in the art world. Um, the way artists are now selling and, you know, working, um, is all based in technology. So, you know, if you're forgetting that in the art room, you're forgetting a huge chunk of how artists are working in the real world. Um, you know, with the pandemic, artists started opening up their studios and posting videos of themselves on on like Twitter and Instagram, just like, hey, here's my studio. This is what I'm doing today in the pandemic. Come check it out. Um, and so for kids to see that and know like technology is big, even if you're a painter or even if you're going to be, you know, a ceramicist or whatnot, that's, you know, it's part of their life. You have to embrace it and you can't forget that piece of it. Like always, at the end of our interview, I asked Kelly about her favorite teacher. She gave two examples of teachers who served as valuable mentors, though neither were art teachers, and how they continue to have an impact on her teaching style to this day. Could you tell us about your favorite teacher? Yeah, so I had two. Um, my, I think the first teacher who really kind of maybe opened my eyes to teaching, and I didn't realize it at the time, her name was Sandy Strobel Johnson. She was my um, psychology teacher at in high school. And she had a course where you could go and tutor kids at the elementary school. And, um, you know, and so I, I don't even remember how I got into that course, but I ended up tutoring kids at the elementary school. And I'm sure that was like that first little inkling that I was interested in teaching. Um, but she also had a way of teaching the psychology course where she would tell all these stories and they were always something about her life and either her kids or when she, and it probably was stuff that nowadays we wouldn't tell to kid, like students in our classrooms, but it secured that psychology knowledge so that you really understood it. And then um, the other teacher that really impacted me was um, a photography teacher, and I can't remember his name. But, you know, there were times where he was, he would like just kind of ponder the most randomest things. Like he was like, why do we have lawns in front of our houses? Like, why is that a thing? And you're like, why are we talking about this in photography? But like, I still remember that, like spending a class time, like pondering, why do we have a lawn? Like, 
and I still don't know the answer to that question, but it really got me to start thinking about like, how can we look at things in a different view? Like, why are we still doing what we're doing? And I think that's, you know, maybe part of where my, my train of thought has gone and like, why are we still teaching the way we're teaching? Or, you know, why are we still, you know, doing this method just because it's been that way for 50 years or even five years? Like, why are we still doing that? Why is that a thing? Why does it have to be that way? Why can't we change it? You know, and I know that all came from his class where we would just sit and ponder weird, strange things. So, yeah. Would you say that um, either of those two had an impact on the way that you teach today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm really, um, you know, I'm not afraid to tell my students, um, you know, things that they, you know, that they need to know, you know, if something's crazy is going on or, you know, whatnot. Like, I try to be very honest and, and upfront about that. Um, I don't try to keep things hidden from them. Um you know, I use obviously judgment. I'm not going to be out there like talking full on politics with my sixth graders, but you know, there's things like I have Crohn's. So, you know, I'll talk to the students about like, well, the reason I'm teaching from home is because of this particular reason and explain that, you know, clearly to them, um, so that they understand. Um, and I think that comes from, you know, my psychology professor who would tell the real stories, like, this is how that is. Um, and even just kind of pondering, trying to see things through the student's lens, I know that comes from the photography professor. Like, how how can I see this through your eyes and see how this might not quite meet my normal view of what I would normally think? After my conversation with Kelly, I couldn't help but think that her assignment example, in which a student designs a tree in a style of their choosing, serves as an apt metaphor itself for the power and promise of choice-based learning. In imagining the gallery of student work submitted from such an assignment, I envisioned Kelly's classroom as a vibrant forest where, instead of every tree looking the same, each one embodied some aspect of the artist, or in this case, student's, personality. And what a beautiful forest that would be indeed, so much more captivating than its homogenous counterpart. Taken as a metaphor, we can make the conceptual leap to consider how, even in a science classroom, or an English classroom, or a social studies classroom, offering students agency over their own learning allows them to bring their own unique flavor to class projects. Learning becomes theirs, and they themselves become artists, or scientists, or authors, or historians. As we work together to bring choice and agency into our schools, We'll continue to celebrate Michigan educators, sharing their hopes, their fears, their dreams, and their beliefs in what's best for our children as we move forward into a new era of post-pandemic learning. Without a doubt, it's going to be hard work to figure out how to foster choice and celebrate failure in our classrooms at scale while still assessing student work in a way that's fair. But with leaders like Kelly forging our path forward, if there's one thing we're certain of, it's that the future is bright. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bright, stories of hope and innovation in Michigan classrooms. This podcast is produced by Herbie Gaylord, is hosted by me, Nikki Herta, and is made possible by Michigan Virtual, a nonprofit organization that's leading and collaborating to build learning environments for tomorrow. 
Education is changing faster than ever. Discover new models and resources to move learning forward at your school at michiganvirtual.org.